This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 27, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The U.S. has a long history of supporting so-called democratic movements in various parts of the world. Cato's Ted Galen Carpenter, in his new book, Gullible Superpower, examines the most prominent cases where well-meaning Americans have ended up supporting misguided policies. He spoke at the Cato Institute last week. The United States, at least officially, has always stood for promoting freedom. That was certainly true of the founding generation and the generations that immediately followed. But there was an important distinction, and it was one that John Quincy Adams, who is Secretary of State for James Monroe, made, and that was that America was the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. But she is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And he did not make that distinction arbitrarily. There was a very important reason for it, and he stresses that. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. And that was a key point, and I think it is a distinction that has uh, been forgotten by subsequent generations of American policymakers. We saw signs of a more active involvement and almost imposition at times of the values of freedom and democracy. We saw it first with Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points, uh, which not only led to the League of Nations, but I mean it's stressing the importance of democratic values. Wilson himself once uh, stated that he was going to teach the people of Latin America to, quote, elect good men. So this is a much more activist policy. This is not just the shining city on a hill. America as an example to be emulated when other people wanted to to emulate that system. This is active promotion, if not insistence. The area that I cover the most, though, is the period from the 1980s to the present. And there was a tremendous boost in terms of activist U.S. policy promoting so-called democratic movements. And this occurred in the 1980s with the advent of the so-called Reagan Doctrine. And this began with support for anti-communist movements that sought to overthrow client regimes of the Soviet Union, left-wing radical regimes that Moscow was backing. The uh, most comprehensive formulation of the Reagan doctrine and its reasoning came from Secretary of State George Shultz in a speech to the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco in February 1985. Schultz pointed to um, 
insurgencies in various parts of the world against regimes allied with or heavily dependent upon the Soviet Union. And Schultz did not just say, well, these are anti-communist movements or these are anti-Soviet movements. They certainly were that. And they were proliferating in a good many parts of the world, particularly the third world, strongly encouraged and even funded in many cases by the United States. But he articulated a different rationale for that than just um, an effort to uh, complicate things for the Soviet Union. He said these movements were fighting for, quote, independence, freedom, and human rights. So that's far more than just motivated by anti-Soviet sentiment or anti-communist sentiment. And there was an emotional component to the Reagan administration's policy and especially the Reagan doctrine. Schultz said, how can we as a country say to a young Afghan, Nicaraguan or Cambodian, learn to live with oppression? Only those of us who have already had freedom deserve to pass it on to our children. And then he added, the forces of democracy around the world merit our standing with them. To abandon them would be a shameful betrayal, a betrayal not only of brave men and women, but of our highest ideals. So this puts a very big moral component to U.S. foreign policy. Now, one could argue with considerable evidence that neither Schultz nor other U.S. officials really believed that, that this was all hypocrisy, to put a gloss on a policy that had realpolitik, geostrategic elements to it. And I think there may be some truth to that. But there are other signs that Schultz and other Reagan administration officials and officials since then actually bought into much of this, that they were supporting the forces of democracy. They were supporting genuine freedom fighters. You find this even in things such as entries into President Reagan's private diary, where he is hailing many of these people as freedom fighters. So that suggests a certain amount of sincerity. Bill Casey, the director of the CIA, in his will, left more than $100,000 to support so-called freedom fighter movements around the world. Again, this suggests something more than just pure cynicism that at some level, many of these people really did believe their own rhetoric. But there are some rather dangerous miscalculations at the root of the Reagan doctrine. Most of the movements the U.S. was supporting were certainly anti-Soviet. They were certainly anti-communist. They chafed against Soviet imperialism, and for good reason. But that didn't mean that they were supporting freedom and democracy, as those terms are normally understood. But 
officials applied uh, the term freedom fighter about as loosely as you possibly can, even applied it to the Afghan Mujahideen. Yet the, Mujah- the word Mujahideen translates as holy warriors, not freedom fighters. And that is a very different connotation. The bulk of the book looks at uh, some 10 case studies of U.S. support for so-called democratic movements. Three of the chapters deal with events during the Cold War. Support for the Nicaraguan Contras, people that President Reagan described as, quote, the moral equal of America's founders. That was a bit of an exaggeration. That's not to say there were not pro-democratic elements in the insurgency that was trying to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government. There were. But there were a lot more who were loyal supporters of the former dictator, Anastasio Somoza, and were, in many cases, high-ranking members of Somoza's infamous National Guard. The Afghan Mujahideen, again, I think you would have to look long and hard to find true pro-democratic elements in the Mujahideen. And indeed, most of them were strongly Islamist, and thanks to the influence of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, most of the aid, the couple billion dollars in aid that the United States provided, was directed disproportionately to the most extremist Islamist elements within the Mujahideen coalition. U.S. support for UNITA, the Union for the Total Independence of Angola, I describe as the Reagan Doctrine's biggest embarrassment. This was one where there was real hero worship of the leader of UNITA, uh, Jonas Savimbi. He was hailed as the George Washington of Angola. He uh, had a major op-ed printed in in the Wall Street Journal and was just hailed as a champion, uh, not only of democracy, but uh, capitalist democracy. He was that kind of symbol. The reality is the guy started out as a a client of communist China. Uh, Unita's internal operation was utterly authoritarian and uh, centered around his personality. In fact, uh, the internal governance of Unita resembled more uh, North Korea than any democratic entity. But he was nonetheless hailed as this great freedom fighter, had uh, uh, meetings both with President Reagan and with President George H.W. Bush. And that one was particularly shameful. It followed a big public lecture at the Heritage Foundation. And these events occurred at a time when there was ample evidence of Sabimbi's corruption and brutality, murdering political opponents, and so on. So that was particularly inexcusable. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that U.S. officials in the post-Cold War period learned from that experience at all. Um, The United States backed the Kosovo Liberation Army in its effort to uh, gain Kosovo's secession from Serbia. And uh, Senator Joe Lieberman 
stated at one point that the Kosovo Liberation Army in the United States stood for the same values and goals, freedom and democracy. Well, later on, uh, an investigation from the European Union uncovered, among other things, that the KLA had murdered prisoners of war and other civilians and sold their organs on an international black market. The last time I looked, that was not considered a major American value. Um, Just as the support of Jonas Savimbi was maybe the Reagan doctrine's biggest embarrassment in the Cold War era, biggest foreign policy embarrassment for the United States in the post-Cold War era was the support for the Iraqi National Congress, the group that, again, was headed by a man that numerous officials in the Bush administration hailed as the George Washington of Iraq. And another official said he was really a superstar. He was the Michael Jordan of Iraq. Now, Shalabi, Ahmed Shalabi and the, the Iraqi National Congress was the chief instrument selling the United States on the proposition that Saddam Hussein had an array of weapons of mass destruction and reliable delivery systems. This intelligence proved to be totally bogus. And when Chalabi was called on it for utilizing the administration as this outlet for his propaganda and using media outlets like the New York Times as channels for that propaganda. He said, we were heroes in error. The whole point was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and we did that. So we're not apologizing for anything. Now, um, Douglas Fife, who was um, one of the assistant secretaries of defense in the Bush administration, literally wanted the U.S. military command to appoint Shalabi as Iraq's new president. We didn't do that. We actually held parliamentary and presidential elections. And what happened to Mr. Chalabi, the George Washington of Iraq and his party? It garnered 0.5% of the parliamentary vote. One would think perhaps U.S. officials misread the political situation in Iraq, but I, I don't want to jump to conclusions about that. Moving on, we have since uh, supported supposedly democratic movements in Libya to help overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. We can see that that has not turned out particularly well with millions of refugees uh, fleeing that country and Libya having become the uh, geopolitical equivalent of Somalia on the Mediterranean, an arena of total chaos. The U.S. also um, has been involved in trying to support supposedly pro-democratic moderates in Syria. And it's really fascinating because the initial argument, at least, was get rid of Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, and democracy will bloom in Syria. Anyone who studied that country would realize the obstacles to that happening. And what 
we ended up doing was supporting Sunni Arab fundamentalists or radicals against a largely secular coalition backing Assad. Assad is not a good guy. Assad is a thoroughly brutal, corrupt dictator. But the alternative in Syria, by all the evidence, is even worse. And yet the United States ended up covertly and eventually even overtly supporting the anti-Assad forces. Even when we support movements that definitely have democratic elements in them, usually the results do not turn out well. A case in point is Ukraine, where the United States backed and frankly meddled to help bring to power uh, a pro-Western government to get rid of the elected pro-Russian government in Kiev. And that, again, has not turned out well. Not only did that really provoke Vladimir Putin to escalate matters and annex Crimea and support a secessionist rebellion in eastern Ukraine, but some of the people involved in the governing coalition and its supporters are incredibly unsavory. Yes, there are definite Western-style Democrats in the Ukrainian government. But there are also some real ultra-nationalist elements and some outright neo-fascist elements. Our meddling there has not really helped matters at all. And the corruption has remained unabated. If you can tell the difference in the degree of corruption between the Poroshenko government and its predecessors, good luck, because you're going to need a microscope to tell the difference. One of the things uh, we ought to learn is not just take these movements and their leaders at their word that they support freedom and democracy. I'm reminded of a story attributed to Abraham Lincoln. And on one occasion, he was discussing a, a complex issue with his cabinet. Lincoln was taking one position, and the bulk of the cabinet was definitely taking the opposite position. And Lincoln was getting a little frustrated and impatient, and he was saying that the cabinet was being unrealistic. He said, gentlemen, tell me this. If you called a dog's tail a leg, how many legs would a dog have? And several of Lincoln's cabinet members said, well, then a dog would have five legs. He said, no, gentlemen. Calling a dog's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And saying that a movement is pro-democratic, pro-freedom, does not make that movement pro-democratic or pro-freedom. If the past few decades have taught us anything, that should be the lesson that is well learned by this point. Thank you. Ted Galen Carpenter is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, Gullible Superpower, available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.